The scripture for today's message comes from Isaiah chapter 2, reading from verses 2 through 4. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may, we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations. He shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as our church begins today to enter into and celebrate the season that we call Advent, Christmas, uh, would you draw our minds and our hearts, would you draw and, and knit our souls together in unity as your people, as your family, to reflect on, to, to reorient our very selves back into the true story, the narrative past, present, and a guaranteed and promised future that you've given us, even here in Isaiah. The return of Jesus, the arrival of your son, the Messiah, the one who's going to sit on the throne, who does indeed right now in heaven sit, and his reign is perfect, and we will enjoy his perfect reign, our, our flourishing, the peace that he brings to us, and the glory of your son, whom we will enjoy forever, Lord, as you are bringing that about, about and as you take us and all of humanity on the course of history toward that coming and promised day, we pray that we would walk in the light of the Lord, your Son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat. So, the, the story of Jesus' advent, that, that word advent means arrival, all right? An important arrival. The story of Jesus' advent, what we call Christmas, it brings light to those who are in darkness, and it brings hope to the utterly hopeless. The true story, the historical events, and the guaranteed future history, the promise of Jesus' arrival, not only 2,000 years ago, but in some guaranteed future day, it brings to humanity, to human beings, what human beings cannot bring to themselves. Light in the darkness. Hope to people who have no good, reasonable reason to hope. So for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at, trying to reorient ourselves in this, in this Christmas story, this, this true story, this, this thing that we Christians call Christmas, Advent, all right? It is a story, but it's not just a story. It's a real story. It's real life. And what, and, and we're, what we're going to do with this is we're, we're not really going to focus on the gospel accounts where we see the, the, the events of Jesus' birth directly narrated and, and told to us, recorded. Um, but we're going to be looking through the lens, through the eyes of a prophet of the Old Testament, a man named Isaiah. All right? So this is... This is uh, we don't have like, a, like an official sermon series title for the next few weeks, but I'm just thinking of this as Advent through Isaiah's eyes. A man who didn't get to live to see in his lifetime the birth, the arrival, the advent of the promised one, the one that God told him to tell God's people about. A man who lived in a time of darkness, of difficulty, and God made promises. And that, the reason... The reason why I feel this is really strongly, and, and honestly, the idea to go through Christmas and Advent with our church through Isaiah really was, was the bright idea, the very, very good idea of, of our brother Christian Wall, one of our elder candidates, and he's like, here's what I think we should do. I'm like, brilliant. That's way better than what I had planned, all right? So, so this is really unique. It's, it's, it's coming from a, from a different direction, and I, I think what, what's helpful, what hopefully will be helpful is that from Isaiah's perspective, waiting on and living to, according to a hope, a belief of something that is different and seems so detached and so distant, impossibly distant, 
from the darkness and the difficulty and the confusion and the anxiety and the frustration of our current observable world and lives and context. And that's why, again, I'm going to repeat to you that the story of Jesus' Advent Christmas, it brings light to those who are in darkness, and it brings hope to the utterly hopeless. Now, I want to I take a second just to kind of deconstruct something, right? Not because tearing things down and deconstructing them is just by f- default good, right? It makes us sophisticated and smart to be able to pick things apart. But sometimes we need to pick things apart, not to destroy them, do away with them, but we need to de- deconstruct them so we can see what actually works and what doesn't, right? What, what actually is at work and whether we should accept it. So I want to talk for just a second here. Our secular cultural Christmas, you guys know what that means? The, the, the secular, the, the world narrative of this time, of this season, of what this holiday in its season is all about, it, you, it's embodied in our made-for-TV Christmas movies, our Publix and Target brand commercials, right? And our Honda and Nissan commercials, in uh, our Santa Claus stories and movies. We, our culture participates in a cultural Christmas. It's telling and retelling a story. It, it, there's, there's a sense that Christmas time awakens in us, in our culture, in our society, a dreamy promise of things that we all desperately want to believe in and, and, and lay hold of. Our secular, worldly, shared Christmas story is a promise. It, it holds promises that we desperately need fulfilled. Peace, warmth, reconciliation, inclusion, provision, some sort of miracle that results in, I'm okay, everything's going to be all right, happily ever after, right? What, what's this like? It, it's the hallmark made-for-TV Christmas special where you're your main character, the one you're supposed to like, get the story through. It's, it's a sophisticated, well-educated, intelligent, go-get-em girl from the big city, and her life's a wreck. Her good-looking, attorney, wealthy boyfriend, fiance just broke up with her, and she just she can't stay in New York. She's got to go to New Hampshire, to the town that she grew up in, but she's a little worried because she's going to have to stay with her dad, who she's a little estranged from. He's kind of rednecky and down to earth, and he's backwards and doesn't have sophisticated ideas, but she goes home, and it's kind of tense, and then she goes with him because he's working on the barn out back, and he's kind of a country guy. She goes with him to the hardware store, right, and she runs into a guy that she didn't like, and he didn't like her, and they didn't understand each other back in high school. He's kind of the reason why she moved out of a dunk backwards town like this, right? And, and she runs into him, and there's this tension. They still don't like each other. But within a week, they kiss, and he proposes in the, in the middle of the town square at the end of the Christmas parade, and there's snow, and there's light. And, and, the, and the story ends. She is reconciled with her dad. They've come to an understanding, right? And, and her fiancé's at the table, and everything is okay. Everything's going to be all right. And they go, I love you. Everything turned out just fine. And then Sparky, the golden retriever, barks, and they go, ha, 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 Sparky. And we zoom out, Christmas, ding, 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 jingle bells. Right? Everything is now right. Everything's okay now. Everything's going to be all right. Peace, reconciliation, love, a bright, secure future. In fact, that, that, this isn't just a secular cultural Christmas story. It's not just a secular cultural promise. We Christians, we tell that story. You can find, you can find that same movie arc with some religion sprinkled on it. Maybe there's a pastor in it. You can find that same story in plenty of shows and stories and movies on Christian religious TV networks or from Christian movie studios. Now, it sounds like possibly with the kind of dripping sarcasm that I'm, 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 I'm replaying that story, it sounds like I'm dumping on that story. I'm not really. Mo- mostly, like, it's bad because most of the time it's just, like, poorly written, okay? Poorly acted. But do you know what's wrong with this modern cultural Christmas story? Almost nothing, except for bad acting or bad writing. Almost nothing. All the things that the people in that story want and need in, in these stories, the promises that they're relying on, they're counting on, you know why they keep on showing up in these stories? Because those are promises that human beings need. Those are promises. Those are things. Those are, those are hopes that all humanity 
need. And we tell that story because we all share that need. The need for hope, the need for peace, the need for provision, the need to have something firm to believe in that I'm okay, we are okay, everything is going to be finally right. The problem is the results of the fairy tale, this, this happy ever after of these Christmas stories, they get separated from the, the thing that makes those promises believable. The thing that assures you that this isn't just a story, it's not just a Hallmark movie, but this could actually be my life. This could be our life. This could be, this could be reality. This cu cultural Christmas story, it's, it's warmth, it's joy, it's, it's peace. It all, it all disappears when the movie's done. It disappears like fog. As soon as the presents are open, the food's eaten, the leftovers are in the Tupperware, and the family has all finally and blessedly left the house. So we can put on our stretchy pants and finally just breathe because company's gone, right? It's like a starving person. Don't aim in that too hard. You got family in here. It's like a starving person who finally gets their hands on some fruit only to find that as they're eating it and they finally think, I'm okay, the tree has disappeared. And now you're, you're going to starve again. There's something else imperfect and unsatisfying about the cultural Christmas story and its promises. It puts... It puts an impossible and crushing burden on people. And do you know who it crushes the most? The people who most desperately need that story to be true. On the poor, on the lowly, on the forgotten, on the lonely and isolated people, on those with broken marriages or wayward kids, on the widower and the widow, the desperately failed people who have ruined everything in their lives. They've broken trust with everyone they know. This Christmas story, it crushes. If it's just this cultural thing, warmth and peace and everything's going to be okay, it, on, on that level, it, it, it crushes the mentally crippled homeless person on the sidewalk, the defeated addict who is stuck in rehab, struggling to find out the strength and the will to stay at rehab. It crushes the little child of murdered parents in a war-torn Middle East. This cultural Christmas, it crushes the people who don't have all the essential ingredients that they need to be able to participate in the story. To be able to get into this story and participate and get that hope, you need some sort of money, some sort of family, some sort of opportunity, some sort of relationships. It, it crushes people who have tried to live this story and the other characters in their real life story, they don't, apparently, they didn't see the Hallmark movie. They're not participating. They didn't get the memo. The Christmas promises that we need, they gotta be real promises. That someone better than Hallmark or Hollywood or the Trinity Broadcasting Network can come up with. They need to be real promises from someone who we can trust can really keep those promises. We need to be able to trust that at our worst, at our lowest, at our poorest, at our most broken, when we have nothing to offer to help get the story and its promises off the ground and going, these promises, that future, this reconciliation, that peace, we need, we need assurance that it's still going to happen, that it's still going to show up. So for the next few weeks, we're going to read and learn from this prophet Isaiah. We need to learn and relearn the true Christmas story the true things that God is saying and doing in this, this Advent thing, this Christmas thing. We need to be reoriented ourselves inside of that story so that it's, not, it's no longer simply a story with promises in our culture that we all agree to play a part in, but instead it's a true story that Jesus Christ is telling us, and he's making it true. So the prophet Isaiah lived a long time ago. He's in the Old Testament, all right? That was his official ministry role. He's a prophet, all right? He lived about 2,800 years ago, 2,800 years ago, and, and he was a Jewish man, and his job as a prophet was he was anointed and appointed by God, selected by God. God said, I'm going to say stuff directly to you in a way that I don't, I don't say to all, all my people. I'm going to speak directly to you, and your job is to go and tell the truth about what I said. Don't change it. Don't massage it. Don't edit it. Don't revise it. Just say what I say. And that was his job. All right? 
So prophecy means to tell the truth. It means to tell the truth. Well, I'll, I'll get a little more into that in a few seconds, but here's what God ends up, just kind of a paraphrasing of what, you, what kind of things you'll see God telling Isaiah to tell the people of Israel throughout his, his book of prophecy. God's saying things like, you, you my people, Hebrews, Israelites, you've wandered. I chose you, but you wandered. You've, you've betrayed me. You're spiritual adulterers. You're worshiping other gods. You've forgotten me. You're ungrateful. You're sin. You're sinful. And, and you're covered in the filth of other gods. You, you're going to face terrible judgment and punishment. And it's going to come from me through the hands of the very pagan and wicked people who don't love me. I'm going to use them to punish you. It's going to be dark. It's going to be hard. But I'm not going to utterly destroy you. You see, because my, my ultimate goal is not simply to punish you. I'm going to discipline you. I'm not, through all that I'm going to do and bring about, you're going you're to get overcome. Your, your city, your nation is going to be defeated, invaded by pagan, wicked, idolatrous foreigners. And they're going to tear the cities down. They're going to remove your fathers and mothers, take your children away, enslave you. They're going to break everything. And through it all, I'm not going to abandon you. You're going to go through all of this. I'm going to bring you through all of this on purpose because it is my plan to do something. It's to redeem you. I'm going to use all of this to bring you back to me. I'm going to use all of this. I, myself, I'm going to fix this relationship between me and you that you broke. I'm going to redeem you. Isaiah talks about the promise that God, the, the promise of redemption comes from a man, a redeemer, the, a person that the ancient Jews knew as the Messiah, the Savior, the Redeemer. God tells Isaiah to tell the truth, to tell about a future man who will show up, and he's going to be perfect. He's going to be holy. He's going to be righteous. And through him, through him, God is going to make everything okay again. The promises are going to be fulfilled. The thing that human beings desperate need and can't get for themselves, make happen for themselves. Isaiah's prophecies are, they're the most particular uh, among the prophecies and books of the Bible, and they're the most filled with promises about this particular person, this Messiah, this Redeemer. Isaiah, it's from Isaiah that we get the most particular prophecies and, and future promises about who this, what this guy is going to be like, where he's going to be born, what his mom's going to be like, right? Where he, how to spot him when he arrives. He, God tells Isaiah what this Redeemer is going to do in order to bring mankind back to God and make peace between God and man. God tells Isaiah to tell the people what it's going to be like after the, this Redeemer is done with his work. The promise of this Messiah. This promise is given to the human humanity, right? But this promise of the Messiah is given in a special way. It's received in a unique and special way to those people who are in darkness, those people who are in suffering, people who are in despair, people who are in lowliness. If you read the Bible in its entirety, you're going to notice something very interesting. Very few wealthy, healthy, popular, powerful, well-educated, athletic, respectable, and acceptable people in the Bible. Very few of them ever truly get and understand and then receive what God's promising. It's not the elite varsity cheerleader or quarterback or scholar. They're the last ones to ever actually understand and lay hold of this promise. Do you know who almost in the Bible, in the Bible, in history, you know who almost always recognizes God, who almost always recognizes Jesus for who he is? Almost immediately, they beat everyone else to the punch. They get it. They receive blessing. They're, they're almost always the one that Jesus goes, that guy over there, you need to follow that guy. Watch that guy. Pay attention to him. And they're almost always the cripple or diseased person who's filthy or a terrible sinner who's been so wicked, they've broken trust with everyone, and everyone has the right to hate them. Those are the people who end up 
seeing and understanding and getting the promise and then starting to receive the benefit from these promises and this hope. They're the blind, the crippled, the diseased, the sad, the suffering, the lonely, the childless, the widow, the neglected, the person with the strained relationships with their family, with their friends, the failed and the failing, the poisoned, the fallen, broken sinner. Essentially, in one word, it's the desperate. The people who are in darkness and are desperate, who have no hope that they or their lives are okay and can ever be okay. Those tend to be the people who get this promise. And it's not just some sort of philosophical or religious promise or prophecy. They go and get their lives changed by it. They see it in a different and unique way. These are the people who no longer have what it takes to grin and bear it and put a stiff upper lip and put a strong face on. Sardonically laugh and chuckle away their, their mess of a life. And go, oh, well, everything's on fire. That's <laughs> okay. You know, God is good, I guess. <laughs> right? Just try not to cry. No, they don't have that anymore. They don't have that strength. Jesus, the promise of the Christmas story, he calls himself the light of the world. The first people who see the light are the ones who are in the most darkness. They're the people in darkness, and they're the people who finally know and they confess. They recognize, I'm, in, I'm just in darkness. It's the people who need the light. It's the people who know they need the light, and they're blind, and they don't have the strength and the wherewithal, and they don't even know how to flip a switch on. It's the people who know that they have nothing to bring to the story to make it happen. No money, no wisdom, no strength, no goodness, no opportunity. I can't make the story happen. And the promise is going to be out of reach, and I'm crushed. Those are the people who tend to get it first. So I want to take a look at this prophetic promise, this, this passage that I just read. I'm going to go through, and I want you to see the story of a future day. It is a literal thing. It's not a merely symbolic or spiritual thing. This is a literal thing, Isaiah is telling us that God told him to tell us. What's, what's the story? What's going to happen? What's the promise? What's the promise? So God says, listen, if it shall come to pass. It shall come to pass. If you are in charge of your household, then you're the one who's probably allowed to tell the other people in the household, it shall come to pass that these dishes will be washed before you go to bed, my dear daughters or sons. Right? It shall come... Why do you have the right to say that? Because you have the authority. If you say it's going to happen, you have the authority to make sure that it happens. This is God saying, and so this is a guarantee. This is a guarantee. It's a promise. It shall come to pass in the latter days. When? Latter days. The end, like at the end of all of the things I'm doing, all of human history, when it's coming and drawn to a close, and it's time for me to make my final act, in the latter days, he says, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. In, in Isaiah's time, in ancient Hebrew times, in, ancient, in the ancient world, it was on the hills and mountains that <coughs> both Hebrews, Israelites, and, and, and pagan people, everyone recognized that spiritually, in a spiritual sense, the, the mountains and the, and the hills, they're up higher, closer to the sky, up closer to the gods. And so they would build their temples and their altars and they'd make their sacrifices up there because in, in, in ancient language, in the ancient metaphor, they, they called those the thin places. The fabric of the, of the curtain that divides man from the gods is thinner up there. And that's where we go to meet him. Whether that's true or not, and I'm not going to make an argument that it is, I'm just saying that's what they believe. God told, the, God told the Israelites that his temple, where he's going to be worshipped, where the priests are going to commune with God directly on behalf of the people, where he's going to receive sacrifice, you're going to put that temple on a mountain. All right? It was, it was an ancient hill called Mount Moriah. It was one of my favorite, it's not even nerdy, but my favorite Bible things that I grew up in the church and never knew until I was an adult. A guy named Butch Entrickin taught me this. It blew my mind. I love this. So if you go in the Old Testament and you read the story of this guy named Abraham and God promised him a son, he waited for decades, lost hope that God was going to give him a son. And then God 
gave him a son. His wife, a billion years old, they have this baby, and they name him Isaac, and he's the child of promise. And he's Abraham's most important and most precious thing in the world. This is his son, right? right? And, and, and then Isaac grows up, and he's like basically a young man, and God goes, hey, I want you to take your son out in the wilderness, up to this mountain, and I want you to put up, build an altar, and I want you to put him on it, and I want you to sacrifice him to me, as a sacrifice to me, right? Now, I, I won't take you through the whole like, lesson of why that, that was happening, why God did that, but what happens on that mountain is he's got the fire set up, he's got Isaac on the altar, he's got the knife ready to go, he's, he's going to obey God and love and trust God in a way that overwhelms his desire to do anything he can to keep the most precious person in the world to him. And God goes, okay, stop. Stop. Don't kill your son. We got this, we got this handled. I'm going to provide a different sac- sacrifice. And so on this hill, Abraham looked, and on the next mountain over, the next hill over, there's a, there's a ram caught in some bushes. And he goes, get that one. You can kill that. That's the sacrifice. Now, that mountain where the, the ram is on, that was Mount Moriah. And it's in that location, right next to that mountain, and on that mountain, that later on, about a thousand or so years ago, God leads David, the king of God's people, to, to take over the city of Jerusalem and make it the capital city of God's people. And it's on that very mountain, on Mount Moriah, that they build the temple on Mount Moriah. Same place, a thousand years later. And it's then another thousand years later that Jesus, when the world needed a sacrifice, that God said, I'm not going to withhold my son. I'm going I'm to let him get caught up in the trees on that hill so that you don't have to die. My son will die. He'll be the sacrificial lamb on Mount Moriah, what was then called Golgotha, the hill of Calvary. On this mountaintop, there's a mountaintop. On, on this, la- of the latter days, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. There's no greater or more important hill than the one upon which Jesus Christ died, right? And, and his temple shall be lifted above the hill. All the nations shall flow to it. Many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk his paths. That's not just Christians or Jews. That's not just God's people. All the nations, all the nations, all the people who don't belong to God. There's coming a day when people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, they're going to go, We need to go to where God is. We need him to teach us. We need, to, we need him to show us the way. Our gods are no gods. They are nothing. We need, we need the one who knows, the one who does, the one we can trust. And for out of Zion, this is God's people, the, the holy city, Jerusalem, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. From this place, from this city, from God's people. That's what, that's what Isaiah needs to come to mean for us is from God's people, the one who are, ones who are redeemed, from God's people represented by this city, the people of the mountain, the people of this temple, the people of Mount Moriah, the people of Calvary, the people of this cross and of this lamb, from out shall go forth into the world the law, the commands, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. When, when the Bible talks about God's law, yeah, that's the Ten Commandments. That's all the rules and commands that God gave to the Israelites. Don't eat this. Don't eat that. Don't wear that, right? Don't get tattooed. Sorry, Lord. Um, all, all the things, right? But more than simply rules about do's and don'ts, God's laws, God's law is meant, it's meant, it's meant to be how God teaches us the path of life. Don't do this because you won't flourish. You'll die. Don't do this. It'll wreck your family. Don't do this. It'll, it'll twist your sons and daughters. Don't do this. It'll, it'll put your children at risk of enemies. 
do this because it brings flourishing. Do this because this is best. These are my ways. This is my, this is, this is my care. These things show you what I'm like. And if you'll trust me and follow these things, then you'll be living life the way I would live it if I were a man. This is the way I would live it if I were a human being. And so out of, out of, God, out of this place, out of this temple, out of this city, from God's people, God's people carry God's ways. They carry God's law. They carry God's, not simply his commands and his rules, but they carry his character and his way of life. How do they carry it? By not just saying it or being street pe- preachers or posting on Twitter or getting a blog or even writing books, but simply living it and demonstrating it. And he shall judge between the nations, verse 4. He shall decide disputes for many peoples. They shall, all of a sudden, you see that shift? Verse 4 starts with he's got a mountain, he's got a hill, he's got a temple. He's got people from all nations, every tongue, tribe, right? We, we've got God's law and character. And verse 4 is like, it's the pinnacle. Do you know why all of that is happening? Because he's there. It's not a priest. It's not a rabbi. It's not a pastor. It's not a king. It's not a president. It's not a governor. It's not a wise man or a guru. This promises he, this is the Messiah, the promised one, the Redeemer. This is what Isaiah calls the Son of Man. This is God. Why is this mountain highest? Because that's where God is. That's where his kingdom issues forth. That's where his people are coming from because they're with him. They're his people. They're in his presence. He, in that day, finally, finally, all the nations, regardless of where they are, what the continents are, what their history is, what their people are like, the ethnicities or the cultures or the money, regardless, all people, all the people on this day who are still around alive, they're going to be people who go, God is God, he's here, he dwells with man, his way is best, I trust that. He's king, I'm going to do what he says. I'm going to happily do what he says. Why wouldn't I? He's the best. And he dwells with us. He brings flourishing in life. He's going to judge between the nations. He's going to decide the disputes. If there is a disagreement, if there's confusion about who's right or who's wrong or what should be done, He's not going to give any advice. He's not going to make any suggestions. He's not going to. He's not. He's not going to be a coach or consultant. He's going to go. This is the way. And people are going to go. That's the way. Yeah. And so the result of that is, because he dwells amongst mankind and man dwells with God. Starting with this day. As a result, justice reigns. Rightness reigns. Fairness reigns. Mercy reigns. Serving one another and looking out for one another because that's the way our God is. That's what's in charge. That's what's ruling the day. That spirit, that law of God dwelling with us and in us. So what's the result? On that day, all the people of the world are going to go, oh, man, I spent a lot of money on this AR. Man, I, I, mean, I really kitted it out. It's blackout. It's got this great scope and this grip. Man, well, don't need this because no one's going to attack me. No one's going to threaten me. No one's going to take my stuff. No one's going to intrude. No one's, gonna, no, one's, no one's in danger because no one is a danger. There are no enemies. My neighbor's my brother. My neighbor's my friend. God is God. He is just. We all follow his ways. Not only will no one come to murder me physically, no one even contemplates harming me in their heart or mind because they love me more than themselves. And I would never want to shoot anyone or hurt anyone or stab anyone because I love them more than I love myself. They are my own flesh. My good is wrapped up in their good. And everyone will agree. Why? Because on that day, he shall judge between the nations because he dwells with man. Man is with God. 
So they're going to beat their swords into plowshares. They're going to they're going to beat their spears into pruning hooks. They don't need weapons. See, like you think swords or spears, implements of war. Right? Like I know that I don't. I'm not looking to get anywhere controversial. I just want I want to recognize if you like if you own a firearm, regardless of where you stand on this stuff. If someone owes owns a firearm, they possess one. I want you to understand. You can use that firearm in any number of righteous, nonviolent ways to deter threats. Hey, hey man, I have this. A lot of crimes are stopped before a bullet is fired or a gun is aimed, just when a bad person knows, oh, you, you have something like that, okay. You know why it's stopped? Because that person goes, you have something that can kill me. A gun is for killing. Uh, you know, you can wound a dude. I know you can. I know there's plenty of responsible, righteous firearm owners that would say, yeah, if you have that gun and you think your life's in danger, you're actually foolish and stupid if you think you can like, aim for their knee. If you have that gun and you're going to use it, that gun, if, it hasn't, if its presence hasn't deterred the evildoer and they are committed to doing user, evil, if you're going to have that gun, you have to be ready to kill. You have to be ready to kill. That's what guns are for. That's what swords are for. That's what weapons are for. They're for destruction. Whether you are righteously defending yourself or defending someone else, or if you're an evil person. But that's what they're for. That's the final, ultimate purpose and intent of, of having that, is to be able to kill if necessary. Implements of war. It takes life. It maims people. It cripples people. It burns down cities, leaves them in rubble, and it destroys and erases entire communities and even civilizations. Just look at human history. But now that we're melting down our swords and our spears, we're melting them down so they can be reforged into something else. Plowshares, pruning hooks, these are farming tools. Now we're going to need those. We don't need our guns or our bombs or anything else because there's no more threat. There's no more enemy. There's no more war. Right? No one wants that. No one's interested in that because God dwells with us and we're with him and we are being taught and we love his ways. You know what we do need? We need some tools for like farming. Because farming with this stuff, I can make food to feed my family and feed my neighbor. With these tools, I can build houses. I can provide. I can help create culture and society and build community which is life people without any more need for war or threat of war or conflict or danger we're going to go well what else do we have to pay attention to life we're going to live forever God himself lives with us and we are now perfected with him let's get to building culture building families writing music building buildings exploring doing what we were designed to do cultural mandate that God gave to Adam and Eve. So nation shall not lift a sword against a nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. That's the result. You see, the goal, like, the pinnacle of this, the big idea here is not that we'll, we'll have in heaven, in the new earth, we'll have perfect bodies, and it's not simply that, we'll, there won't, that there will be peace, meaning no more war, there's no more conflict or strife. It's not simply that we get to write poetry and build buildings and, and, and do farming and live the good, perfect, like righteous, like heavenly homesteading life. That's not, the big, that's not the big E on the I chart. The big E on the I chart is all of those things are promised and they're going to happen because the one who makes the promise is the promise and he's there. He's here. This is the word of the Lord. Not a man. presidential candidates, politicians, business people, whether you're a wealthy entrepreneur, a change of the world, Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos, whoever you like, Hollywood, human beings can come up with great visions for the future. Think of, think of what we could do. Think of what the future holds. Here's what I think is going to happen. Here's what we could do together. I'm not, I'm not bagging on that at all. 
But the best thing that human beings can do under our own power of observation, under our own experiences and our own wisdom, the best that we can do to gather all of that, the best we can do is to predict. And you all watch the weather, right? You've all listened at some point to someone talking about the stock market or the economy. What's happened before? Okay. Well, what's happening now? Okay. Well, what do I think is going to happen in the future? The best we can do is predict. <laughs> but this human, uh, but, but this human, Isaiah, by God's grace, under God's direction, under God's power, this person can do something more and better than predict. What, when God talks to a man through a man, we call it prophecy. And prophecy, when we Christians talk about a prophecy, prophecy is telling the truth with perfect accuracy. You know why the prophecy is telling the truth with perfect accuracy? You know why you're not going to get anything wrong? Because, like, with the what you say or the way you say it? You know why? Because it's God who, who's the one who said it. It's not your own personal impression or hope or dream. You're not making anything up. You're not drawing from anything. From your, it's from the Lord. Prophecy is simply telling the truth in the most truthful of ways. Telling the truth in the most truthful of ways. We've all tried to tell the truth at some point, and it wasn't the... Like, truthfully true, but it was essentially true. Kind of true. The amount of truth that I think you kind of need in the moment without all the truthful truth coming out and making you upset or distracting. Right. No, prophecy is simply telling the truth from God in the most truthful ways because God cannot and he does not lie. In him is there, there is no darkness or shadow. Inherent in all prophecy is some sort of promise. And this prophecy from Isaiah, God says it. And Isaiah just simply says what God says. And it's inherent, it's filled with promise. Thus saith the Lord, such and such a thing will happen, such and such a person will do X, Y, or Z. When God gives a promise, when God gives a prophecy, it will come about because God himself is promising that he himself, God, is going to bring it about. So I want you to think about Isaiah's experience, the one who wrote this to us. God told it to him, and God wrote it. God had him write it down and tell it, right? When and where are Isaiah's prophecies and promises about this Messiah fulfilled? Isaiah lived 2,800 years ago. 800 years later. 800 years. What's 800 years before now? I can't do that math. My wife, Shannon, what is it? 2023 minus around 800. Is it 1,200? All right, we're talking 12. We're talking like Middle Ages, right? Middle eight. Like, what was the world 800 years ago? When does the person of this promise show up? It's not the fulfillment of this particular promise, but the, the fulfillment that this he who this whole promise here in Isaiah chapter 2 depends on, he's got to show up or else none of this happens. So when is this Redeemer, this Messiah, the one who's going to get us back to God, make peace between us and him, and therefore now there's peace between man because there's no war between God and man, there's no war between us. When, when is this going to happen? It happens 800 years after Isaiah hears it. He didn't get to live to see it. In fact, it happens... This Redeemer, this Messiah, this He of the mountain and the temple who rules and reigns, He shows up after 400 years of silence from God to His people. That's a long time. He shows up in the midst of an oppressive pagan Roman culture and occupation with the boot of the Roman centurion on the neck of every single Hebrew, God's people, God's chosen people. He shows up in a time when there is no true king over Israel and there are no prophets anymore. He shows up in a time when the Jewish religion is as good as dead. There's a temple, there's sacrifices, there's priests, pri priests there's rabbis, but it's dry. It's humanistic. It has a God, but it's God-less. God's own temple is filled with thieves and money changers. The priests and the rabbis are self-serving. And they burden people with God's law. 
This was meant to be the path to their flourishing. The very leaders and priests that God gave to God's people for a path and a relationship with him, they're now whitewashed tombs. They're dead inside. They look clean and religious outside. They look like they have it all together. They're, they're supposed to be innocent like lambs, but they're, they're just poisonous serpents. The priests and rabbis teach the scriptures still, but they don't find life in them because they don't find the Messiah in them, and therefore they have no life with their scriptures to give to God's people. The promise of the Messiah, the arrival of this he, the promise, the one who's going to go, I am here to show you that I am fulfilling the promise from 800 years ago. I'm the one you can trust and ensure, like, I'm going to ensure that everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be set right. I'm here to bring you hope. This promised Messiah, when he shows up 2,000 years ago, he's given to the lowliest of the low. He's given to the, mo the most obscure of the obscure. He's given to the most marginalized and humble mother of all. He's given to a pregnant teenage girl and her blue-collar, impoverished, nobody husband. These are folks from a place called Nazareth who even the Jews considered that place hillbilly. And Jesus shows up as an adult doing his ministry. He goes, oh, give me a break. You're like supposed to be the Messiah or something? Are you from Nazareth? Nothing good comes from Nazareth. They, like, like we have a joke about Alabama and Mississippi here. Right? Like, like why do all the trees and in, in Nazareth lean you know, why do all the trees in the neighboring lands next to Nazareth lean that way because Nazareth sucks all the trees lean that way because that place is terrible that was the way they talked about that and it, he grew up there he was born in Bethlehem a tiny nearly forgotten little village the only place that anyone the only reason I, why anyone would go to Bethlehem is because that's where like you know we raise the sheep for like the temple but no one lives there no one's no one's building a Costco with 15 story like condos Right? No one's doing that. Here's the deal. It's into this darkness. It's into darkness that the light of the world is born. He's given to the forgotten. He's given to the lowly. He's given to the poor. He comes first to the broken, the sick, the neglected, the small, to those who have no reasonable hope to believe they can have hope. That's, that's how the he of Isaiah 2 who's going to make this day in the later, latter days. That's how he comes about. And that's who he comes to first. What are, what's this prophet, what are the promise, what are promises here? Future day, when it arrives, God's going to establish this place of worship. People from every tribe and tongue. They're not only going to go there, they're going to want to go there. They're going to see him for who he is, and they're going to go, we do need him, we want him. And those people are going to be welcomed just like us. People who once were not a people will now become God's people. And they'll want him, and they'll be welcomed, just like we are welcomed. Do you remember these people? The people who draw unbelievable, impossible hope and joy from these promises the people whose lives are changed radically. And it's not because these future things have already happened. And it's not because their life is being made better, the circumstances are all of a sudden clear, clearing up, and all the things they desperately need and want in this life are finally showing up. No. Those things might never happen in their lifetime, just like it never showed up in Isaiah's lifetime. It's the people who see and believe that it's true because they see and believe that he it's true. That he's worthy. He's trustworthy. I can believe in him. And if that's the promise, and it's a guarantee, and if, if she never comes back home, or I never get back to the place financially or career, or if I stay unmarried, or I never get to achieve or do the thing I've always dreamt and it aches in my body to not get to do yet. 
sin would be terrible, but I can, I'm going to make it through. That's not going to kill me. That's not going to destroy me. Because he, he said, he said, it shall come to pass. His promise is that I'm going to be there on that day. I'm going to get that no matter what. And it's better an infinite number of billion and billion times over the things I dream of and really desperately want and maybe even need now here in this world. I can go through that. You know why? Because the one who promised this, he went through it. He didn't get married. Didn't have kids. Didn't achieve ministry excellence. All of his followers abandoned him. At some points, he had thousands and thousands of people following him. They all abandoned him. His best friends abandoned him. His best friend betrayed him and disavowed him right in front of Jesus. The government hated him. The elite religious people hated him. The smart, sophisticated, wealthy people called the Sanhedrin, the political elite, the people with real power, they hated him. They wanted him canceled. They wanted him not just to end his ministry, but they wanted him to die. And on his way to die, they wanted to make sure that everyone mocked him. That he didn't just die a martyr, that everyone's like, oh, that wasn't fair. But no, we, we hate him. He's stupid. We don't like him. Spit on him. Call him names. He, we can't just kill his body. We've got to kill his reputation. We've got to kill his character. We've got to kill everything about him. He went through the worst. He died without his family. He died in front of his mom. No one wants to die. I would hate to go in front of my mom. I don't want you to see that. He went through that. And he's the one who says, it shall come to pass. I'm going to make it happen. So you can go through, you can go through the darkness. You can go through the valley. I'm your shepherd. I go with you. You can go without. You can have it taken from you. You can have it held from you. You can have it done to you. Unrighteous, terrible things. But you can go through it because he's going through it and he'll go through it with you and it shall come to pass and he'll be with us it's a promise that's a promise and that promise comes most directly and it comes most powerfully not to the people who think they need some help I could use some assistance I could use some help no it comes to the desperate people who are tired of putting on the strong face. The people who just don't have the strength it takes to kind of cover it up and just go, I'm a wreck. I, I have nothing. I have nothing. I need someone else to do this. Please help me. I got nothing left to try. That's who Jesus goes. You're ready for me. You're ready for me. Why does God this with us if what like what if we here in 2023 as Christians after 2,000 years of Christianity what if we end up finding each of us by the time we are dying or dead we come to find out that this latter day hasn't come yet and I'm about to die what good is this promise right why does God give prophecies and promise to people who they're not going to live in this life to see it? Well, I just explained a really big reason why. But I'll add to this. this. God gives the Apostle John, his most beloved di disciple, Jesus, Jesus' disciple and friend, he gives the Apostle John 800 years after, uh, after Isaiah, he gives him the full, the full revelation, the full prophecy of what what leading up to that latter day when the mountain of the Lord is established and the city is there and the, the nations and their kings shall bring their glory into that city and there will be no temple because God and the Lamb will be the temple, right? And no unclean 
or deceitful or wicked thing or person shall enter it. And God will dwell with man, and he shall be their God. And, he shall be their, and they shall be his people. He shows John that. And then John doesn't get to see Revelation play out. He didn't, get, he didn't live to that. So why does God give us, why should we care about this? Why, what good is these problems? Are these for like, well, wishes and try to have, like, stir up some happy, hopeful feelings? No. What does it matter? I mean, if that's what God's going to do, let's just get all fatalistic. That's what God's going to do. There's nothing for us to do. I mean, he's going to do it anyhow. That is not, that is nowhere in the Bible. It's, in fact, 180 degrees opposite of the way Jesus, God himself throughout the Bible says, here's my prophecy. This is what I'm bringing about. This is what I'm going to do. So sit around and don't do anything. Just wait for me. He didn't say that. Prophecy is given to God's people so we can prepare. Prophecy is given to God's people so we can prepare. So just an aside, just for half a second. You, you need to have good theology. You, you need to know a consistent understanding of God's word because otherwise you might hear things in bits and pieces from different teachers and Bible teachers and pastors and preachers, whatever, and, and you'll end up with a Frankenstein theology, a Frankenstein Christianity. Like, like you're building a car for yourself it's got a Chevy engine, but like Mercedes brakes, and you're putting like valves and rotors and things in there, there from all these different cars. They don't work together. That car doesn't run. You're not going anywhere with that. There's Christians all over the world with that kind of theology. So God gives prophecy to God's people so that we can prepare. So there are people who go, I believe in something called a rapture. At the end of times, Jesus is going to make all Christians disappear. Our clothes are going to be left there, and all that's going to be left on the earth is non-Christians. But Christians will be whisked up, and then it's going to come a time period called the tribulation, and then it's going to get really nasty, and it's going to be like war and terrorism, cutting off of heads, and marks of the beast, and everyone's going to be playing Dungeons and Dragons and listening to Billie Eilish, right? Like, oh, it's going to be dark. I'm so glad Jesus is taking me up to heaven. Now, there are some people who believe that who are preparing. Are they preparing? Like, this is a big character, but there are some people like, they have like 30 five-gallon buckets in a cinder block basement full of food, and they got plenty of ammunition, ammunition, and they got plenty of guns, and they, they've watched all the YouTube channels, and they've actually gone to like, you know, wilderness camps with guys who will teach you survival tactics, and they've got like a ham radio and everything for when it all goes down. My question to you is, hey man, who are you gathering that for? Because when all the bad stuff happens, like, aren't you disappearing? Are you, get, are you collecting that for me? Because I'm pretty sure, I don't, I don't agree with you. I think I'm getting left behind, if you're right. You, are you gathering that for me? No, Christians are given prophecy by God so we can prepare. What does that mean? In Luke chapter 2, Jesus tells, he tells us. He tells a parable of a master who owns a, a manor a property, and he's got servants, and he, he goes, I'm going on a long journey. You don't know when I'm coming back. You already know your jobs. You already know your place. You, already, you have my instructions. So I'm gone. Take care of the place. Keep it clean. Keep it organized. There's my wife. You know her. Take care of my wife. Watch out for her. Help her out. These are my kids. Protect them. Watch the walls. I want, you, I want you to keep my business going while I'm gone. I want you to keep my business. You know my ways. You see the way I run business. I trust, I'm trusting you. Do it my way. Keep this place going. All right? I'll be back. And he goes... I want you guys to know on the day of my return when you don't know who that is you really want me to find you preparing for my return and how do you prepare by doing what I've already told you to do you don't have to do anything special keep working keep living your life keep living and demonstrating my law and my ways before one another in my household and before those people out there. Just keep, keep doing that. And you're not going to fool me like some teenager who didn't do your chores until you hear Life 360 ping on your phone and you realize mom's about to get home and all of a sudden you start, no, I can tell. I know, I know, no. That's how we prepare. Revelation chapter 1, 3. Jesus again tells us why he's giving this prophecy. I'm giving you this prophecy in Revelation 1, 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear and 
Blessed are those who keep what is written for it, because the time is near. Those who keep it. Those who live it. Believe it and live as though these things are going to happen and he's coming back. The he, the promise. It's not just a promise of better times. That's not what prophecy offers. The promise of real Christmas Advent, the promise of this Messiah, Redeemer from Isaiah, it's not, it's not, see, I would love for us all to find ourselves on Christmas Eve or Christmas night, gathered with family, and everyone's at peace, and no one's fighting, no one has hurt feelings, there's plenty of food, and, and presents are given, and people are saying, I want that for us. That's, I'm, I'm not insulting that, but I want that. That's not what Christmas promises. Because that will disappear like a vapor. It always does. And you'll feel all right, but you don't have any reason, any good reason at all to believe that everything's okay now. Because it's not. Because the latter day hasn't happened yet. The prophetic promise isn't about what's going to happen, but it's about the person we can trust to make it happen. So, how are we going to prepare? I'll try to make it simple. We'll just take Isaiah's prophecy here. What does it mean to prepare and live this life leading up to that latter day when he who has already redeemed us and will bring this day about? We, we, need, to live, we need to live as living previews of that promise. We have that redemption. We don't have the fullness of of that day yet, but we have that redemption. We can live as previews. How? Well, we can live as though we really have seen He who was promised. We can, we can live as though He really did do what He told Isaiah He would do to redeem us. We can live as though the not yet and in the future promises are as good as done. Because they are as good as done. That's a promise. It shall be. Worship God in your life with every bit of your life. Because for, for us now, until that day when he establishes a hill, a mountain, and this day he's already told us, every hill, every hill sacred, every mountain sacred, every cubicle is sacred, every stage is sacred, every living room is sacred. Why? Because I dwell with you. I go with you. Worship God everywhere. Open wide the doors to those who need to come in. You have no idea how many lost people, non-Christians around you, or even people who might be Christians, but they're not in church. You have no idea how many of them would love to receive your invitation to come to church or to believe in God. But they don't understand God's laws and rules, and they think they're not good enough, and they have no place. And they're not, they're not going to accept it. They're not going to receive it. They're not going to come. They're not going to hear it. Not because they're mean or they're angry or they're stupid, but because they really believe and they have good reason to believe that God could never want them or love them. And those kind of good people that belong to the could I, I could never belong with you guys. Come on, let's get real. Open those doors wide and disabuse them of the lie of welcome them with the welcome of Jesus. Show the worthiness of your master by living his ways by living his worthy ways so that the people of all nations, the people of all communities, the people of all schools and businesses and jobs in the earth, they go, I, I'm not sure I have that God. I'm not sure I want that God, but man, that seems, seems to be a lot better. Not everything is going, why? They're, they're a wreck. He's got cancer. She just lost their job. Everything's a wreck. And they're not a wreck. Like, they're a wreck, but like, they haven't lost hope. How are they making it through that? How do they not hate everyone and everything? There must be some way, some guide, some, some thing that is showing them the way. Show people the worthiness of God by showing, living the worthiness of his ways. Melt down your weapons of count, conflict. Turn them into instruments of reconciliation and life-giving. Get rid of the bitter. Go ahead and melt down and toss into the furnace the bitterness and the hurt and the rejection and the error and the sin that other people have done to you. The confusion, the anger, the frustration. Put all the, uh, put the whole record of accounts 
that damned that person to conflict and division and war between you. Go ahead and take your side of it, toss it in the furnace, and let it be reforged into a tool that doesn't kill them or defend you from them and keep, no. Let the Lord turn that and forge that into instruments in which you try to bring them life. You try to provide for them. You try to serve them. Make peace as far as it depends on you. And finally, that verse five, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. That whole Christmas story, the hope, the peace, the all rightness, it won't depend on your family or your friends or the Christmas presents or the holiday cheer or the spirit or how well the, the Christmas gatherings and stuff went. It, it won't depend on that. You know why? Because you're aiming for something far greater than what those promises are. You're reorienting yourself to this Messiah, this, this he, the person of the promise, the one who gives the promise and makes sure the promise happens. And that, man, you can handle any, any hurricane of a Christmas if, if that's the main character, if that's the person of the story, the Christmas story, if you're believing it and trusting it. I do take us into a time of communion.